Well, hey, everybody. It's so great to be with you. And once again, a special welcome. If you're joining us for the first time, whether here in the room or online, uh, we're in the third week of a series that I've called Castaway. Um, and as I mentioned, it's one of the most intriguing sets of talks that I've ever put together. Uh, it's based on a framework that I developed for an assignment that I was given years ago during a seminary class called apologetics. Uh, now, apologetics is a fancy word used to describe the ability to articulate why you believe what you believe. Not a bad thing for pastors to be able to do, if you stop and think about it. Uh, anyway, the assignment for the class uh, was to imagine that you found yourself stranded on a deserted island that upon exploration wasn't completely deserted. Uh, because one morning while you're out for a sunrise stroll, you come upon a guy who's been living alone on the island for years. And now, not surprisingly, he was overjoyed to find another human with whom to talk. And so you spent the next few hours getting to know one another. You talk about your family, your favorite books, your favorite foods that you can't eat while you're stranded on a deserted island, uh, your favorite brand of sunscreen, which you ran out of, um, and eventually what you did for work uh, back on the mainland. Well, well, as soon as you confessed to this guy that you had been trained as a pastor, the conversation turned to religion. And he confessed that though he's often been fascinated by people of faith, he's never seriously considered becoming one himself. He said that he just never felt the whole supernatural thing was necessary in order to make sense of the human experience. And then he asked like how you came to believe in God and in Jesus. And the assignment for the class was to submit an outline of what you might say in a hypothetical situation like that. And the content I developed for that assignment became the foundation for this series. Now, now what I want to do briefly is just review if you haven't been with us, because each week these talks kind of build on one another. And, and in week one, I, I began by laying out as best as I could the case for a creator. In other words, I chased down the answer to the question of how any rational human, someone who's trying to be honest about the world in which we live, uh, could come to believe that we are not here by accident. And I noted that for me, in the end, after considering all the evidence that we have so far and more comes out all the time, the evidence given us by astronomers and physicists and biologists and geneticists and other nerds, right? <laughs> after all of that, uh, that my conclusion is that it actually takes a lot of faith not to believe in a creator. It really does. Uh, his fingerprints are all over our world. Or maybe better, our fingerprints are all over his world. Uh, and if you didn't catch that talk and it sounds intriguing, you can go back and watch it anytime on demand on the website. So anyway, that's what we talked about in week one of the series. And then last week, um, as the hypothetical conversation with Beach Dude rolled on, I made the somewhat obvious observation that if there is a creator, then something has gone wrong, like really wrong. If there were an original, in the beginning sort of design or blueprint for the human experience, then there's no way that our present reality reflects it. And we know this if you just stop to think about it. I mean, there's no way that things like hurricanes and tornadoes and droughts and floods and disease and pandemics were a part of anyone's dream for humanity. I mean, that would be cruel. So like at a very deep level, something's wrong with our world or something's wrong in our world. And, and as I mentioned, um, at least to me, there's actually more to it than that. Because if we're honest, something isn't just wrong with the world. Something is wrong with us or in us too. Like 
maybe you've noticed, you know, we humans just don't always do what we know we should do. And this has been the case for a very long time. I love how a pastor named Paul articulated this in a letter to Christians living in the city of Rome 2,000 years ago, a letter that later made its way into the New Testament of our Bibles. Here's what Paul said. Um, he said, I do not understand what I do. And again, this is a pastor, so this gives me some hope for myself. I, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For, for I have the desire to do what is good. So that, that's a plus. But I cannot carry it out. That's a minus. He says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, aren't those some great verses, right? They, they describe something to which we all can relate. Because if we're honest, we've all had seasons, or at least moments, when we become frustrated with ourselves because we don't seem to be able to do the things that we know that we should do. And we don't seem to be able to stop doing the things that we know we shouldn't do. And it's not just that we make mistakes. Like we talked about this last week. I mean, uh, uh, we, we, a lot of the wrong things that we do, we do them on purpose. Like we know what we're doing and we do them anyway. And you can't make a mistake on purpose. If you make a mistake on purpose, it's not a mistake. Uh, when you know something is wrong and choose to do it anyway, that's something else. That's actually something that the authors of the Bible call sin. And, and, and here's why this is such a big deal in the real world. You put it up on the screen. You don't fix a sin and a mistake in the same way. I mean, when you make a mistake, um, when you forget someone's birthday or you accidentally take a wrong turn near Ann Arbor that sends you in the direction of Livonia and eventually some flat tires, hypothetically speaking, of course, right? Then you can say that you're sorry to whoever it was who was harmed or inconvenienced by your miscalculation. But when you sin, well, it's almost like you incur a debt with someone, a debt that must be repaid and that's why we say things like, he owes me after what he did, or, or she's going to pay for what she did to me. Now, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's a big difference between a sin and a mistake. And, and whenever we sin, if we're honest, we've just presented more evidence that not only is something wrong with our world, but something's wrong with us too. Which brings me to our topic for today. And I'm glad you all came back because last week was not very uplifting. It's like, well... I guess I'm bad. Right, there you go. Go in peace. Yeah, well, because at this point in my hypothetical conversation with Beach Dude about how I came to believe in both God and Jesus, I would begin to talk about what I've learned over the years about the cultural evolution of human religion. And here's why I think that matters. Once you understand how religion naturally developed within the context of a broken world, then you can begin to see how Judaism and Christianity did not develop naturally, not by a long shot. And with our time today, I'll show you what I mean. Um, and, and to begin, I just want to make this observation. All over the ancient world, religions developed in response to two largely undeniable realities, realities that we've just discussed, namely that there is a creator who made our world, and that something has gone wrong. Moreover, these ancient people reasoned that if this creator was watching us, then it's possible that our sin not only broke our relationship and created a debt with other people, but at least theoretically, it may have broken relationship with him or her or them, because there wasn't a lot of clarity and perhaps this broken relationship between people and the creator is the reason for all the brokenness that we experience in our world. All those hurricanes and 
tornadoes and droughts and floods and disease and pandemics. Maybe in some way it's all connected. And so ancient religions developed as a way to try to make amends with the divine, to try and repay the creator for whatever it was that had offended him or her or them. Uh, here's like a hypothetical example I, I came upon years ago that was so clarifying to me to kind of show you what I mean. Imagine there's like an ancient community located near a body of water, like a pond or a lake or a stream, and they use this water to irrigate their crops in order to provide them with the food that they need to feed their children and, and themselves uh, each year. And now imagine that, that for some reason one year, uh, for reasons unknown, the rains don't come when they're supposed to. And the body of water on which they rely begins to dry up. And as the days roll by and as the drought continues to worsen, people begin to wonder if they could have done something to offend whoever it was who controlled the rains. And, and this was no philosophical exercise. I mean, if the rains didn't come soon, the community would have to relocate. I mean, to stay where they were would be to risk starvation. And so as I imagine it, one night around a campfire, there's a conversation among the village leaders or the village elders, and they wonder aloud if the pain that they're experiencing was in some way punishment for the wrong things that they had done, like either as individuals or as a community, because again, there's no clarity. And, and maybe if there were a way for them to apologize and make things right with whoever it was who controlled the reins, and is it, would there be a way for them to repay the debt that their sin may have incurred with him or her or, or them? And so they kind of brainstorm and they begin to consider, you know, what something of value might be that they might, and the word is sacrifice, in order to show whoever's in charge of the reins that they were truly sorry. And as the conversation continues, they said, well, if we could come up with something to sacrifice, then we would build like an altar and, and we would like light a fire and then we might bring something of value like a blemish-free lamb or ram or goat. And the one guy's like, can I bring my three-legged lamb lucky? And you're like, no, that doesn't work. Sorry, yeah. Uh, but, you know, blemish-free, lamb, ram, goat, something that would be missed, especially during a drought. And then they would slaughter it and the blood would spill and then they would sacrifice it on the altar. In other words, like the sacrifice was sacrificed and the smoke, along with the pleasing aroma of barbecue, <laughs> rose into the heavens where they reasoned whoever controlled the rains must live. And they hoped that perhaps the rain god or the rain gods would accept the sacrifice as payment for their sins and they would send the rains and the drought would break. Now, obviously, at this point, uh, one of two things happens. And if you are a note taker, I'm really excited that you're here today, right? If you're a note taker, you really should write this next part down. It's super profound. I worked on it all week. And it goes like this. After making the sacrifice, one of two things happens. Either hmm, it rains or it doesn't. Thank you. I know. Deep stuff. Worked on that all week. But seriously, like the smoke went up. And perhaps within a few days or so, the rain came down. And in the ancient world, uh, they may have attributed the rain to their sacrifice serving as paying off the debt of their sins. And if that happened, a cult would be born, like a religious cult. Um, and an official permanent altar might be installed, and maybe even a temple that was attached to the altar, and, and it would be dedicated to the rain god. And after that happened, uh, people would begin to regularly sacrifice in order to try and maintain peace with the one who controls the rains. So that's what happened if it rained. 
Um, but what if it doesn't rain? Because that's the other possibility. Uh, what if the blood of the sacrifice is spilled and the smoke and aroma rise into the heavens and the drought continues unabated? Well, in that case, as I imagine it, there's like another meeting around the campfire of the leaders or the elders. Um, and another conversation would occur and, and a discussion would ensue because as it turns out, there's actually a couple of ways to interpret a lack of rain following a sacrifice. At first, it's possible that just there's no one who sends the rains. Nobody's up there. Uh, you know, you just had a few superstitious people in your, in your crowd. Um, and somebody's favorite pet lamb got sacrificed unnecessarily. So that's, that's one option. But, but the other option is a little more sinister because it's also possible that there was somebody up there, but that the sacrifice, even though it was a big deal to them to give it up, it wasn't big enough to pay off the debt their sins had incurred. I mean, how would they ever know for sure that they had sacrificed enough? And that reality, and archaeologists tell us, is that reality led cultures all over the ancient world, cultures that it's worth noting had limited, if any, contact with one another to independently travel down a slippery slope with regards to what they sacrificed because in the end, they never could really know the full scope of the debt their sins incurred. And so when things got bad enough, people went as far as making what they saw as the ultimate sacrifice and they would offer their children on the altar to the gods in order to make amends for the wrongs that they had committed. And what's fascinating is that this happened all over the ancient world. And consequently, ancient religion was fueled by insecurity and fear. Insecurity and fear because you never knew when you had done enough. I like to think of it this way. Ancient people were sort of blindly reaching up in the hopes of connecting with and appeasing whoever it was that their sin had offended. All of which brings me to one of the most significant moments in human history. And this is no joke, the moment when I believe that the creator of heaven and earth made contact with the people that he created, people who had turned away from him in sin, people who, as it turns out, he still loved and with whom he still desired a relationship. And then now it's worth noting that in making contact, the creator brought a level of clarity that simply would have been impossible any other way. I mean, when you think about it, either religion is built by humans who are blindly reaching up in an attempt to discern the divine, or it's instituted by a creator who reaches down. A hello from the other side sort of moment, if you know what I mean. And by the way, Mandy crushed that song. Okay. Um, and there is actually incredibly compelling evidence that that is exactly what happened. And here's what I mean. The author of the first book in your Bible, it's a book called Genesis, records that around 4,000 years ago, God reached down to a man named Abraham. And he invites Abraham to leave behind everything he had ever known. This would have included the cultural traditions pertaining to the rain god um, and really an entire framework for how to think about and understand the world. And so God says, I want you to leave all that behind. It was called his father's house and I want you to be a part of this new redemptive initiative that's about to be unleashed on planet Earth. One in which the creator would partner with a specific group of people to reintroduce himself to all the people of the world and to deliver a message to the world that he had not given up on people at all. 
Uh, far from it. He actually intended to restore the peace within creation that had been lost when the first people chose to sin. And this journey of restoration began when God made contact and, and made Abraham a series of incredible promises. Here's what God said to Abraham. He said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And it's worth noting that at, this, at the time this promise was made, a, a nation whose purpose would be to bless the world was like unthinkable. It was a radical, even unbelievably progressive idea. It was a concept that quite simply would never have evolved in the midst of ancient cultures. Because in the ancient world, it was the strongest nation that survived. Communities were tribal. And those outside of a given community were seen as competitors at best and enemies at worst. I mean, the ancient world was filled with warring nations fighting for control of territory and resources. Nonetheless, God reaches down and promises that through Abraham, he's going to create a nation that will bless the world. It's almost like in that moment, there's a blinding light of clarity that shines down from heaven into the human story. And nothing would ever be the same again. Well, well, fast forward with me 500 years or so, and Abraham's descendants have become a nation, but they're a nation in chains. They've been enslaved in Egypt, and, and at that point, God reaches down again, this time to a man named Moses, who you've heard of, and he sends Moses to Egypt's leader, another man named Pharaoh, with a message. And the message is that the time had come for God's chosen people to be released into their mission. And not surprisingly, Pharaoh is reluctant, but after a series of fascinating events that we do not have time to unpack today, uh, he relents, and 40 days later, the children of Abraham find themselves at the foot of a mountain where they're given 10 commandments. Yep, those 10 commandments. Uh, 10 directives on how they're to organize their life. And they're also given blueprints to direct them as they build a portable tent into which the creator promises to send his spirit to dwell on earth in the midst of his chosen people. This is a picture taken at the Timna Park down in Israel, where we hope to travel, uh, should the pandemic ever leave us behind. Um, and you can walk through and see, but it, it, this was uh, based on the blueprints that we find in Exodus. Uh, this structure was called both the tabernacle and the tent of meeting because it was the place where heaven and earth came together and where God met with his people. And it came along not only with the instructions for the tent, but with the instructions for a sacrificial altar, which you can see in the picture here, um, and a system by which people could pay for, uh, the technical word is atone for, their sins. But perhaps most shockingly, they also included limitations for what needed to be offered. In other words, by following God's instructions, the people could know for certain when they had sacrificed enough to pay for their sins. Instead of fear and insecurity ruling their religion, God desired peace and freedom to be the, the thing that pushed it forward. Uh, consider this example, um, just one example from something called the burnt offering. It's found in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, which if you've ever tried to read the Bible straight through on your own, probably derailed your efforts, if, if I'm guessing. Um, but anyway, God directs Moses to tell the people this. He says, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, 
bring as your offering an animal, either from the herd or the flock. He says, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He goes on, he must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He goes on, he is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, like transferring his sin to the animal, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. In other words, if God says to the people, if you follow these instructions, then the sacrifice you offer will completely pay for or atone for your sins. And you can walk away from the altar knowing that you're forgiven, knowing that you're right with God. And now I say all that to say that the sacrificial system of ancient Israel, though primitive from our perspective, was incredibly and even impossibly progressive in the time it was given. It's not something that would ever have developed without outside, outside inspiration. I mean, nothing like this emerged anywhere else in the ancient world. And it inaugurated a new era in human religion, uh, one not ruled by fear and insecurity, as I mentioned, but one centered on a good and loving God who provides clarity and peace and freedom for his people, even as they navigated a broken world as broken people, even as they navigated a broken world as broken people and continued to sin. In other words, even though something was wrong in the world and something was wrong in them, the Creator provided a way forward, free from the shame and the guilt of past sins, even after what they had done, whatever it was, He desired to be in a relationship with them. And again, not because they are good, but because He, He is good. Well, as I imagine, at this point in the conversation, uh, Beach Dude would say something like, that's pretty compelling. In fact, I've never thought of any of that before. Uh, and in fact, I've had conversations with friends over the years who will point to verses in the Old Testament, like where the book of Leviticus is found, as evidence of the regressive nature of the Bible. He's like, you know, t you know, 2021 or whatever, if we put it in our modern context, he's like, we're not going to be like slaughtering animals to cover over sin. But, but he says, if I'm understanding you correctly, like when you set the Bible in its original historical context, it was radically progressive, and maybe even evidence that there is a creator of heaven and earth who made contact. To which, in this hypothetical conversation, I would smile and respond, yes. And there's so much more we need to talk about because, well, 1,500 years or so after God made contact with Moses, this same creator actually physically entered time and space, he set foot on planet earth. And when he did, he brought us a message that honestly, we couldn't receive any other way. In fact, he came to be the answer to all of our religious problems and the, the questions that religions were trying to solve. And that changes everything. But that is a conversation for the next time we get together for him and for us. It's another cliffhanger. Yes. All right. Yeah. So uh, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand. And uh, online, please join us as we close our time together in prayer.
Heavenly Father, um, these are deep waters, um, but there's something about revisiting your story that is so, so inspiring. Um, It's wonderful that you would not only create, but that you would re-engage in a broken creation with a plan to restore the peace that was lost. We thank you that your plan is so much greater than simply the management of sin. You desire people to walk with you in this life and to be a light in this world. I pray for the conversations that we will have this week as we sort of wrestle down what all this means for us. I pray that that by your spirit, we would experience confidence, not only in your love for us, but also in the fact um, that this story, your story, is history. And that changes everything. And so for today, we thank you for the grace in which we stand. We thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We thank you because we know where the story goes from here and we know of the cross and we know of the blood and we know of the lamb who was slain, the once and forever sacrifice that we may participate in. And we look forward to revisiting that chapter in your story the next time that we're together. But for today, we, I ask that your grace and your peace would be on us all as we navigate a broken world, as broken people many of whom have been redeemed or rescued by the blood of Jesus. And for that, we will be forever grateful. It is in his name, the name above all names, that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you back next week.